Today on Legalese, we have the first video in my Supreme Court wrap-up. Hey, greetings and welcome back once again to Legalese. My name is Bob. Thank you so much for joining me here today. Uh, for those of you who may be new to this program, welcome. This is a podcast where we're going to be discussing all things constitutional law, as well as current events in other areas of law, politics, and culture. Now today, uh, what I have for you, well, for those who are new to my channel, uh, it might help to know that at the start of every fall, uh, I do an annual series of videos that I call my Supreme Court Roundup. I do this at the beginning of every Supreme Court term. And this is where I go through the marriage cases that the Supreme Court has decided to grant cert on for that term. And I pick out the cases that I think have the potentials to be landmarks in constitutional law or some other cases I pick out because I have some peculiar interest in them for one reason or another. Now, last fall, uh, the cases that I picked for my Supreme Court roundup were Bracken v. Hallen, which is an Indian Commerce Clause case. Uh, Moore versus Harper, which is about the independent state legislature doctrine. There was Twitter v. Tamina and Gonzalez v. Google. These were a pair that tr were tried together, essentially, that were initially at least about uh, Section 230. Uh, this is the provision of the 1996 Communications and Decency Act that provides protections to platforms for content their users post. Though, as you will find out momentarily, that's not at all how these came out. And the other case that I covered was National Pork Producers Council versus Ross, which was a dormant Commerce Clause case. Now, as you might have guessed from my explanation I just gave there, what we are going to be talking about today is the Twitter and Google case. So we are going to be talking about uh, basically wrapping up these two big tech cases. Because just the other day, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Twitter and Google in these two separate cases that attempted to hold these websites financially liable under federal law uh, for terrorists who use their platform and algorithms to recruit members and launch deadly attacks. Now, at the heart of the two cases, Twitter v. Tamina and Gonzalez v. Google, was a question about whether the two websites had essentially aided and abetted Islamic State group terrorists by failing to adequately moderate the content on their platforms. In each case, uh, Islamic State group terrorists would launch a deadly attack, one occurred in France, the other in Turkey, and relatives are attempting to lay part of the financial responsibility on these social media platforms, saying the terrorists use them as recruiting tools. Now, while these cases, when they were announced, led to a lot of debate about the limits of Section 230 of the Communications and Decency Act, that's the federal law, of course, that gives online platforms immunity against liability for content posted by third parties. That's not how these cases actually shook out. So, if you would like to know more about Section 230, I've actually made a very good primer video about that quite a while ago that explains what Section 230 is. Uh, and why it's significant, and it's, it, I think it's really good uh, introduction, even if you really know nothing about that particular law. So I will have that linked uh, down in the video description. 
And instead, what we had was the justices ruled much more narrowly here that the plaintiffs had failed to state a claim in which the court could provide relief under the relevant law here, which was Section 2333 of the Federal Anti-Terrorism Act. So, Twitter v. Tamina involved a lawsuit against Twitter based on Twitter's alleged role in helping ISIS by providing its publishing services and by algorithmically recommending some of ISIS's videos. The lawsuit was brought under this Federal Anti-Terrorism Act, but the act applied fairly traditional aiding and abetting principles borrowed from criminal law and tort law. So, just for a quick review, to go back to the QP that the court agreed to hear in this case last fall, it starts out by saying that under Section 2333 of the Anti-Terrorism Act, as amended by the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act, U.S. nationals injured by an act of international terrorism that is committed, planned, or authorized by a designated foreign terrorist organization may sue any person who, quotes aids and abets by knowingly providing substantial assistance or who conspires with the person who committed such an act of international terrorism, end quote. And they may recover damages under section under 18 U.S.C. section 2333 subsection A and subsection D2. Now, with all that in mind, the questions presented are 1. Whether a defendant that provides a generic and widely available service for all its numerous users and regularly works to detect and prevent terrorists from using their services could be said to knowingly provide substantial assistance under Section 2333 merely because it allegedly could have taken more, quote, meaningful or aggressive, end quote, actions to prevent such use. And second, whether a defendant whose generic, widely available services were not used in connection with a specific act of international terrorism that injured the plaintiff in question might still be liable for aiding and abetting under Section 2333. Now, the court held that Twitter was not liable, chiefly because Twitter merely provided an off-the-shelf service, which treated ISIS no better than any other user. We could really call this the just-like-everyone-else doctrine because, as you will see, as we go through the opinion of the court, and especially uh, the key points that I have uh, pulled out to highlight for this video, the thrust of every point was essentially ISIS was treated just like everyone else on the platform. Now, of course, if you want to read the full opinion of the court, you will find links to the both opinions, uh, both Twitter v. Tamina and Gonzalez v. Google, on the show notes page, along with links to all of the relevant legal and judicial documentation from the extensive history both cases have as they initially moved through the lower court. And the decision of the court in this case was unanimous and was penned by Justice Clarence Thomas. Now, uh, his primary holding in this case found that plaintiff's allegations that the social media companies aided and abetted ISIS in its terrorist acts on the Reina nightclub failed to state a claim under 18 U.S.C. section 2333 subsection D2. Now going to the judgment of the court. Thomas says to start, recall the basic ways that defendants as a group allegedly helped ISIS. First, ISIS was active on defendant's social media platform. 
which are generally available to the internet using public with little or no front-end screening by defendants. In other words, ISIS was able to upload content to these platforms and connect with third parties just like everyone else. And second, defendants' recommendations, algorithms, matched ISIS-related content to users most likely to be interested in that content. Again, just like any other content. And third, defendants allegedly knew that ISIS was uploading this content to such effect, but took insufficient steps to ensure that ISIS supporters and ISIS-related content were removed from their platforms. Notably, plaintiffs never allege that ISIS defendants' platforms ISIS used these defendants' platforms to plan or coordinate the Rayina attack. In fact, they do not allege that Mashrapov himself ever used Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter. The mere creation of these platforms, however, does not rise to the level of culpability. To be sure, it might be that bad actors like ISIS are able to use these platforms, like the defendants, for illegal and sometimes terrible ends. But the same could be said of cell phones, emails, or internet generally. Yet, we generally do not think that internet or cell service providers incur culpability merely for providing their services to the public writ large. Nor do we think that such providers would normally be described as aiding or abetting. For example, illegal drug deals brokered over cell phones even if the provider's conference call or video call features made the sale easier. He says, to be sure, plaintiffs assert that defendants' quote, recommendations algorithm go beyond passive aid and constitute active substantial assistance. We disagree. All the content on their platform is filtered through these algorithms, which allegedly sort the content by information, and inputs provided by users and found in the content itself. As presented here, the algorithm appears agnostic as to the nature of the content, matching any content, including ISIS's content, with any user who is more likely to view that content. As noted above, defendants' platforms are global in scale. They allow hundreds or millions, hundreds of millions or even billions of people to upload vast quantities of information on a daily basis. Yet, there are no allegations that defendant treated ISIS any differently from anyone else. Rather, defendants' relationship with ISIS and its supporters appears to have been the same as the relationship with their billion-plus other users arm's length, passive, and largely indifferent. And their relationship with the Reina attack is even further removed, given the lack of allegations connecting the Reina attack with ISIS's use of the platform. And so in this case, it is enough that there is no allegation that the platforms here do more than transmit information by billions of people, most of whom use the platform for interactions that once took place via mail, on the phone, or in public areas. The fact that some bad actors took advantage of these platforms is insufficient to state a claim that defendants knowingly gave substantial assistance and thereby aided and abetted those wrongdoers' acts.
And that is particularly true because a contrary holding would effectively hold any sort of communication provider liable for any sort of wrongdoing, merely for knowing that the wrongdoers were running its services and failing to stop them. That conclusion would run roughshod over the typical limits on tort liability and take aiding and abetting far beyond its essential culpability moorings. And therefore, the generic language of 18 U.S.C. Section 2333, which covers anyone who, quote, aids and abets by knowingly providing substantial assistance or who conspires with the person who committed such an act of international terrorism, end quote, could have been read more broadly, since the provider of an off-the-shelf service may know that the services are substantially helping the criminal alongside all the other non-criminal users, but the court made clear that it shouldn't be read that broadly, and I believe that that seems quite correct. Now, uh, though this was a unanimous ruling, uh, Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson did write a short concurrence in the Twitter decision, uh, seemingly to point out that this ruling was very narrow, focusing on two very specific cases with very specific facts. And she said, quote, other cases presenting different allegations and different records may lead to different conclusions. And the next case we have is Google v. Gonzalez, or Gonzalez v. Google, technically. And uh, this case was similarly, similarly disposed of, uh, except this was a short per curiam decision, which means there was no primary holding. They just issued an additional order of the court, noting the same failure to state a claim that applies in the Twitter case also applied here. Now, obviously, as a per curiam opinion, that means that there were no dissents. So let's revisit the Google QP really quickly. In that case, they said, Section 230, subsection C1 of the Communications Decency Act immunizes a, quote, interactive computer service, end quote, such as YouTube, Google, Facebook, or Twitter, for, quote, publishing information provided by another, end quote, quote, information content provider, end quote, such as someone who posts a video on YouTube or a statement on Facebook. This is the most recent of the courts of the three courts of appeals decisions regarding whether Section 230C1 immunizes an interactive computer service when it makes targeted recommendations of information provided by such another party. Five courts of appeals judges have concluded that Section 230, subsection C1, creates such immunity. Three courts of appeals judges have rejected such immunity. One appellate judge has concluded that circuit precedent precludes liability for such recommendations. So with all that in mind, the question presented here is, does Section 230, subsection C1 immunize interactive computer services when they make targeted recommendations of information provided by another information content provider, or only limit the liability of interactive computer services when they engage in traditional editorial functions, such as deciding whether to display or withdraw with regard to such information. 
Now, the court, in declining to consider any sort of Section 230 concerns in Gonzales because it simply didn't need to, concluded that these platforms didn't actually, quote, assist terrorists in the first place, and so the Section 230 protections aren't relevant. And to go to the actual per curiam opinion by the court, they stated, We granted certiorari to review the Ninth Circuit's application of Section 230, uh, C, uh, essentially uh, 590, that's the Twitter v. Kamenak case. Now, plaintiffs did not seek review of the Ninth Circuit's holding regarding their revenue-sharing claims in light of these unchallenged holdings and our disposition of Twitter on which we also granted certiorari and which today we reversed the Ninth Circuit's judgment. It has become clear that the plaintiff's complaint, independent of 230, states little, if any, claim for relief. And so, while this really is an important win for online free speech, uh, online censorship would have likely increased dramatically if the court had uh, come to rule against these platforms. So, uh, in the end, these were very good rulings. They weren't exactly what anyone was expecting at all from them, uh, but that's all right. That happens sometimes. So, uh, anyways, I will be back with another uh, Supreme Court wrap-up soon. So far, the only other case that we actually have a decision in is National Pork Producers v. Ross, and that is an absolute clusterfuck. Uh, I, I want to get a video out on that, but that opinion is just an absolute fucking mess. So, um, I'm working on that. I'll have it soon, and uh, as soon as the other cases drop, I will certainly be doing videos on those as well. So, stay tuned. Uh, and until next time, this has been Bob uh, for Legal Ease, and of course, as always, Cartago de Lenda Est.